Hi, everyone, and welcome to the PedScript Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges. I'm a current pediatric ICU fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin. I'm a critical care fellow at Children's National in Washington, D.C. Now, Zach, this isn't the first podcast that you started, correct? Yeah, you're right, Alice. My first experience in medical education podcasting was helping start the MCG Pediatric Podcast during residency. What about you? So, same. In residency, I started a podcast called Peds Admit with my friend Shafali, which focuses on resident workflow specifically. When I was interviewing for PICU Fellowship, I was so excited to find someone else who knew how to podcast and who wanted to start this project. Oh, for sure. And me too. That's essentially how PedScript was started. I feel like collaboration is my favorite part of open access medical education. Me too. We love a collaborative moment. So talking about our other podcasts, this episode is something that we recorded originally for Peds Admit. We talked to one of my favorite mentors about really how to do your resident workflow in the PICU and how to do it by system. It is so relevant to critical care medicine that we thought it would be a great fit for PedScript. Perfect. Let's get right to the content. That's one of the things I love about rounding with residents is being able to see those connections being made. Hi, this is Alice. This is Shafali. And you're listening to Pete's Abbott. Thank you for your patience and for your continued listenership as we've taken this extended hiatus for our podcasting duties. Thank you for your continued support. Um, <laughs> we know you're still out there. <laughs> but no, but it's great to be back, Alice. Maybe we could take a couple of minutes and just talk about our new roles. And So we did it. We, um, we graduated residency. And Shafali, what are you doing now? I am working as a BMT oncology hospitalist, sadly no longer in D.C., but in another great place. I have transitioned from pediatric resident to pediatric critical care fellow, still at the same hospital, although I did move two blocks south. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. It's been like a kind of a whirlwind, kind of a crazy transition. It feels Mm -hmm. weird to not be a resident anymore in some ways, but I think in other ways it's exciting and I think it was time. (laughs) For a transition. Yes, yes. <laughs> Definitely actualizing in every sense of the word to get out of yeah. this. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. So right before I started ever having to round as the fellow in the PICU, we recorded this episode with Ashley Seams. Ashley Seams was the education director in the PICU in DC for many years, and she recently transitioned to being the pediatric critical care program director at Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital in St. Petersburg, Florida, right outside of Tampa. Yeah. And we were uh, both very fortunate to work with her while she was here in D.C. And she's just like truly an outstanding, outstanding attending and mentor to many, many, many residents who have been in our program. We are so excited to share this episode with you guys with the following caveats. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so I feel like it seems just so wildly entitled to now be listening to presentations and to put out a podcast episode saying how we would like them to go. But this is about what I wish I had done as a resident. Exactly. Uh, And I I think we both even say it throughout this episode. There are many things that we're about to cover that we didn't do as residents that sound like awfully presumptive of us to be releasing as an episode. Uh, But I think it just goes to show you that regardless of being done with residency and transitioning to kind of bigger picture roles where like I'm a hospitalist, but I still present on patients, there are many places for us to improve and many ways for us to kind of streamline things. And I think we both wish we had this framework (laughs) starting out in the PQ. Yes, we really wish we had it. Uh, so part one of a series on PICU orientation. Let's get to the interview. So Dr. Seems, 
Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, before ever we get started, how's everything in St. Petersburg? Is it as beautiful as it looks? St. Petersburg is absolutely fantastic. Uh, thank you for having me, by the way. I am thrilled to be part of this episode. Um, St. Petersburg is absolutely fantastic. The weather is gorgeous. We get a couple of rainstorms in the afternoons, which is typical, but then it's uh, bright and sunny and uh, living in paradise certainly helps offload being in an ICU sometimes. We believe it. Honestly, the weather up here has also been muggy and <laughs> thunderstormy, so <laughs> it sounds like it would be a nice break to come down there. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Anytime it gets too hot, you just hop into the Gulf and you get yeah. to cool off in the water. So <laughs> <laughs> That's <too nice. laughs> that is different. That is different. Um, so today we're going to be talking about rounding in the PICU, um, and we're going to start a little bit broadly and then break it down by system. There's so much to talk about. It's such a large topic, um, but Let's start with, again, the basics. First of all, what do you see as the point of rounds? So there are so many goals of rounding in the PICU. Uh, first and foremost, it's always about the patient, right? So coming up with a plan, touching base, knowing how sick that patient is, are they getting better? Are they getting worse? Making sure that the whole team understands where we are in the, in the clinical course and how we're going to move forward. So that's definitely one goal of rounds. The second goal of rounds is really updating families. Most PICUs these days are family-centered rounds, making sure that families understand. And I can just speak personally as being on the other side of rounds recently with some of my family members. It is a different world, right? And it is scary. And yeah. I speak the language, right? And so just making sure that that's a part of rounds as well, making sure that that's an element that's always incorporated. And three, not to be minimized, the ICU is a great place to learn. And so really making sure that there's an educational opportunity with every patient, a good presentation is going to ensure that because we can teach to that presentation. Um, but making sure that everyone who's on rounds, including nurses and respiratory therapists and pharmacists, there's something to learn about every patient for everybody who's there. And so really, I would say those are the threefold things, patients, families, education. I love that way to break it down. Such a good framework. Mm -hmm. um, when you think about the team and the way that the team is layered from, from yeah. nurses to maybe medical students, residents, fellows, and then the attending physician, what do you see as the point of having the resident present on rounds? Sort of all of the objective data and the plan and everything like that. How do you see that as part of education and, and part of patient care? So I think to I, I think to answer that question, I want to give you guys a framework that has always helped me when it comes to working and operating in the ICU. As previously mentioned, medicine is a language. It is a language that not many people can speak. And you learn that language in medical school. So you're just learning the language in medical school. And then when you're an intern, you're you're becoming fluent in that language, right? It's an immersive experience. Mm -hmm. Coming to the ICU is like going to some place where you have the language, but it's a different dialect, right? And so you need to learn that dialect. And so with that framework in mind, I think as a medical student, you're really trying to just start to get familiar with the language. As a resident, we're trying to take you to that next level to get a deeper understanding of what cl 
critical illness actually is. Um, and so because of that, I do think that the presentations should be focused a little bit differently. You are now fluent in the language of medicine. And how do you get into those subtleties that make a critical care patient a little bit different? And because of that, your presentation is going to be different. That's just such an excellent framework. Just hit home exactly how right. I felt presenting in the picky for the first time yes. and wondering, you know, hey, I'm a second year. Why isn't this easier? Why <laughs> yeah. do I still feel like it's my yeah. first day in a new place, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's okay. Some programs you do rotate in the ICU as an intern, but that's why it's okay to feel a little uncomfortable. And being uncomfortable is how we transform how we get to our next level of learning. And it's okay to be uncomfortable in the PICU. That's often natural and it gets better with time. So what, what we are hearing from, you know, what the role of the resident is in terms of presenting is really exercising those skills that you've picked up um, from intern year and trying to think more critically about your patient and get a global framework and deeper understanding of what's happening to them. And that really is the purpose of having the resident present. A hundred percent. I would just say that that's so important because as someone who prioritizes education of the residents, a good presentation, I know where your mind is. And so if I know where you are and I know where the patient is, I know how different those two places are. And so my job is to connect the dots between what you're thinking and where the actual patient is and getting those two on the same page is really a wonderful thing. I, that's one of the things I love about rounding with residents is being able to see those connections being made. Mm. That is just an amazing framework for thinking about your role as a resident on rounds. Mm -hmm. Can you broadly describe the best way to sort of present a patient by system and how you like the information organized? Yeah, of course. I think the first thing to think about, though, is first and foremost, I want every patient that you are presenting, I want you to to start to think about them in three buckets. One is this patient is one of the sickest patients. That's bucket one. Very sick patient, very complicated. Almost every organ system is affected and involved, and they're acutely ill and or worsening. Bucket two is the bucket where patients are ill but stable. And then bucket three are the patients that are clinically improving and on cruise control on their way out of the ICU. And the reason why I want you to think about those patients and classify them in that way is because notoriously, and this is a gross generalization, so not always true, but notoriously ICU attendings are very short in attention span. And so <laughs> you don't want to spend too much time talking about extraneous or extra information, especially in that third bucket. And that patient that is no longer critically ill but still improving, uh, the ICU attending wants to know that you recognize that that patient is better and that they don't need as much as your attention. So another way to think about that is as sick as the patient is, is as long as your presentation should be right? So that sick patient, it's totally okay to present for 15 minutes because that's how much present time you need to get through all their information. That bronchiolytic weaning on high flow, that presentation can be 30 seconds long, right? So I want to start by saying that. So um, just know that your presentation should be adjusted to the acuity of the patient. And 
Um, if you're in bucket one or two, those acutely ill patients that are either stable or worsening, then you present by systems. For anyone who's getting better, feel free not to do that framework. Um, so that being said, when you present by systems for the critically ill patient, your presentation should not follow your note, right? I think there's this habit in medicine and how we're trained to just read your note, right? You have all of the information in there. That's not how you should present in the ICU because in the ICU, one of the skills you learn is learning what's relevant and what is not, the pertinent positives, the pertinent negatives, and there's some extraneous information that just you, we know that you know it. You need to know that stuff, but you don't need to present it. And so keep that in mind as well. So a great presentation starts with your assessment, right? Skip straight down to the assessment. And I used to work at Walter Reed, and I just love this military term, bottom line up front, right? I want the bottom line up front. Who is this patient? What are they there for? And how sick are they? And if you can give me a great assessment, that one-liner in under a minute, I'm so excited. I'm like, yes, you're getting it. You're proving to me that you're getting it. Or if you're stumbling, that is a sign to me. Let me help you out here, right? So all presentations should start with that one-liner, that assessment. So this is a, and I'm just using an example here, a 13-year-old bone marrow transplant patient, now plus 13 days, who got admitted for acute respiratory failure with hypoxemia, intubated, mechanically ventilated, and currently with worsening gases, right? Mm -hmm. So in that, I know the important background. I know why they're there. I know whether they're getting better or not. Mm -hmm. That's, that should be your assessment. Um, and so that is, that's the, how you start every presentation. And it should be upfront. We shouldn't be waiting until you've presented your subjective objective. Um, after that, um, I would say that that's your headline. That's your, your minute speech. Then you can start by systems, right? And so every institution I have found uses a different order of systems. And so you kind of have to get the know-how from those people who have been around before. Um, for example, um, in DC, we would start with the respiratory system. Here in Florida, we start with the neurosystem. Um, and so it's very interesting. Um, so just know what the convention is um, here. Since I'm, I'm now a St. Petersburg stan and I'm all about all children's hospital, I'll just use this as an example. I, um, so once you have your assessment done, you, you, let's say you're presenting the neurosystem first. And I think it makes sense, right? Because um, neurorespiratory and CV, those are the bread and butter of critical care, those three organ systems. And so it makes sense to present those three first. When we're talking about the neurologic system, um, oftentimes we're including sedative information, oftentimes we're including med mental status, and you might, you might start each one off with a mini assessment for that patient. So let's say it's that BMT kid that I already used the example of. This patient is currently intubated and sedated, appropriately awakens on my exam. And so from a neuro perspective, and here's another little fun fact, there are certain intensivists out there who hate the 
term neuro wise, respiratory wise, EV wise. Yeah. What is what's the deal with that? <laughs> I have no idea. I'm just being totally honest. Um but a lot of people are like, that's not a word. Why are you using that? <laughs> so if you learn nothing else from this podcast episode, just never use the term wise after an organ system. <laughs> and you will succeed. Um, but you can say from a neuro perspective. Um, and then you would give a mini assessment and you would go through the current status and your plan and then present what you would do and why. And it's very important going back to saying you're not reading off your note. You're not going subjective, objective assessment plan. Your your current status, your plan is going to be justified by things that, that you would have presented in those other sections. And this is, again, going back, are you critically thinking about this patient? Are you using the information that you've gathered to interpret that information and manage the patient? So again, going back to that example, I have a 13-year-old intubated BMT patient. He's currently sedated. And overnight, he got seven PRNs of fentanyl and versed. When I walked into the room, he was alert and anxious appearing. I think the plan today should be to go up on our trips. Right. And so um, anything that is justifying your plan is what you present, Mm -hmm. not those micro details. Right. And then, of course, you can present the fentanyl is currently at 0.5 mics per kilo per hour. I want to go up to one mic per kilo per hour, whatever that is. Those details can come subsequent to that. But it's big thought processes that we're looking for. Similar in respiratory and CV. do a little micro assessment for each of those, right? So respiratory still intubated, worsening respiratory status because my P to F ratio is getting worse. And we can do a deeper dive into each system if you would like. Um, but really, I'm looking for that micro assessment followed by a plan and a justification for your plan. Perfect. So I think it's helpful to contrast the different kind of presentation styles when you think about patients on the acute care floor who residents might be more comfortable with. Um, when they step into the PICU, you're flipping the script and you're flipping the order of things. Your headline is your assessment. And then you're kind of going system-wise, giving your, again, your mini plan and then using any evidence you have to sort of back it up. Is that generally what you want to hear? Yes. So 100% yes. And I should have um, given this disclaimer at the front of this in that we as an intensive care group, while we can make gross generalizations, like we don't have attention spans. um, It's also true that we also have our own preferences and and things Mm -hmm. along those lines. So it is important to talk with your attending and say, um, at the end of your first day of presenting on rounds, how did presentations go? Would you like me to do anything differently? And they might say, oh, yes, I, I would prefer you to present the drips in a certain way. And they'll help guide you um, for the most part. I think an, another key here to know is in the time of electronic health records, I think we have been shifting what we want presented, right? All of us are good at gathering data. I can easily pull up the EHR and see, oh, yeah, my fentanyl is at 2.5 mics per kilo per hour. So for me, it's less important that you're reporting that information and more important to me that you're interpreting the information that you have gathered. We can all gather our information. I don't need you to tell me that data. I need you to interpret it for me so that I can teach to what your interpretation is. Oh, my gosh. We were in med school four years ago. We learned this eight years ago. The people who wrote these guidelines did it 20, 30, 50 years ago. That's the first time I've heard someone acknowledge 
not presenting all of your CBC data because we're all looking at our computers. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and honestly, I wish that that was the case more in, pra- in practice. Like, I just feel like I think about all the time that I spend in the ICUs still presenting things a certain way just because it's the convention. But mm-hmm. who is that helping? Really nobody. <laughs> and acknowledging that they didn't have an EMR at one point, right? Like that you yeah, had to go to exactly. the chart and That's write the stuff down just to know it. Exactly. Is- exactly. I think, you know, it's such a good point to bring up, too, because I think without acknowledging it, the faculty prefers presentations this way, but have never fought the system because this and this happens all the time in in medical education. Like we've always done it this way. So we're always going to continue to do it this way. Mm -hmm. And yet there are some residents who present this way, take to it. And then the moment a faculty member hears them present this way, they're like, this is such a good resident. They're like talking about Mm -hmm. thought processes. I've never had someone be like, this resident didn't present enough information, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, no faculty. And this is as someone who was responsible for resident evaluations responsible for getting resident feedback. No faculty member has ever come to me in the ICU and said, this resident is not giving me the details I need um, on RAS because we are taught to present the micro details when really we should be presenting our thought processes. I think the nice thing that gets passed out, at least from residents to residents is in the ICU, um, as much as we do sweat the details as residents, uh, there is this thing of like, you know, you're going to have the X number of patients and all of their systems are going to be active. And if you don't know what their drip is at, it's not 100% on you to know that information. And while you're presenting, that's where you incorporate your bedside nurse or if it's a, you know, vent setting. Like there are so many ways to sort of incorporate getting that information on rounds so that you can focus on the big picture. And then the big picture is where you get all the learning from. So I think that's starting to at least change a little bit from, I feel like our senior residents told us that we sort of pass Mm -hmm. that along, like don't sweat it. Your vent settings might be wrong. If you look at the patient at 6am, they walk the unit and change them. Your nurse will correct you. It happens to good people. Believe it or not, we've been telling each other to keep it short. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's so funny that we've, I mean, this is a little bit of a, a, like a detour, but um, when we started in the ICU, the note format changed because of our EMR changing, right? And so I do think it's funny how, at least on our, my team, I remember how much of a, like a weird wrench that threw in the system of people were like, I don't like the way that it's written. And then I don't like the way that residents are reporting it because they're reporting it in the order of the note and it doesn't logically make any sense. And so I just think it's so important to like, how that affected our presentations, I feel like the first block and just remembering your order of the note does not reflect how you should present. It's just a note. It's not, you know, it's a documentation in the record. It's not the the be all end all of how you present. So yeah. <laughs> I'm about to blow your guys' minds. And uh-huh. I think detours are, make podcasts fun sometimes. <laughs> but um, down here at All Children's Hospital, we actually do nurse-led rounds where the nurse presents <laughs> all the data. <laughs> so... <laughs> This is not the first time I've heard of this, and I think it's mind blowing. And it's how they do it in our CICU, I think, right? At, at right least yeah, at DC. yeah. Yes, um, yeah. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. it, I mean, and it makes sense. So, um, and we've been using these terms, kind of throwing them out. There's an old school educational framework called the Rhyme Model, mm-hmm. um, where there's reporters, interpreters, managers, and educators, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just want to preface what I'm about to say with some of my ICU nursing colleagues are some of the best interpreters of information that I have ever met. However, when I think of rounds, I think about it in the sense of the nurse should be reporting the information about the patient. They know them the best. 
And because things change second to second, minute by minute, hour by hour, they're going to have the most up-to-date information, even above and beyond our electronic health record, right? Mm -hmm. So they should be reporting. And I view the role of the resident as someone who should be interpreting that information. And maybe, maybe those who are really getting it become managers by the time they're done with their picky rotation. But that's a skill, right? We have to teach you that Mm -hmm. skill. So your role on rounds is to become that interpreter manager. And then the fellows are there to become manager educators. And then the faculty members there as the educator, right? The person who's, who's kind of guiding everyone to get to that next level of understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, if you think about it that way, know that you don't have to present the detail. You need to present the interpretation of the detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a shame not to use your note, but you probably only have one or two really sick, long conversation patients, right? Like mm-hmm. you're going to have a lot of kids where it's, they're on cruise control and, and you don't need to say much. Yeah. Right, right. And I do think that the computer is a crutch. And I think, I think we all rounded together in DC at, at a certain point in time. And I think you might remember, I used to encourage people to walk away from the computer right? Mm. I think the computer is that barrier. Everything you need to know to present a patient is right in front of you and not on the computer, right? And yeah. and being able to do that is scary because it's it, it's our safety blanket. It's our, it's our comfort zone. But if you're able to just put the computer aside and say, this is my patient, this is what's wrong with them. Bye systems, here's what I know and here's what I want to do. That's the, that's what you should be aiming for. That's the gold standard. I um, We don't have personal computers here and we don't round with workstations on wheels or anything like that. So it's just my handwritten notes and whatever sign out I printed. And the first day was terrifying. <laughs> progressively, it's become very obvious that like a lot of what was there, you don't need. But it is really hard to break that habit after three years of having that <laughs> as a crutch. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's something that medicine really has to start to reckon with. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you guys saw the most recent Hopkins study. For about interns and how much actual face-to-face, it's like 13% of their entire year, right? Or something like that is spent in direct patient care and the rest of it is all. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 90%, of, 90% of an intern's time is not face-to-face not. with patients. How are you supposed to learn medicine if you're not face-to-face with patients? And just kind of building off of that study, when we said the second goal was the family, Mm -hmm. how intimidating do you think it is for family members to see all of these people, not that we're hiding behind a computer, but that's a wall, right? That's a Mm -hmm. physical barrier between you and the patient. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's gotta be, it's scary to be in an ICU as a family member period, but even more intimidating to have these, this barrier between you and the team that's supposed to be caring for you. And mm-hmm. so I really think that there will be a reckoning coming soon, hopefully, um, where we start to walk away from our EHR. We start to leave that behind and we start to get back to the core of medicine where families and patients come first. Yeah, Absolutely. 
And it's not, yeah, I think it's, so like nobody, what we don't, it's not a good feeling for us to be no. standing, you know, yeah. nobody likes it. It's all. No, it's not that we want to do it. And it's exactly. not that interns want to spend 90% of their time not facing families. Like people want that. And I think kind of like breaking that mold, breaking kind of what we were saying before about breaking the mold of rounds and being like, you need to report the data because I can't look it up myself. Mm-hmm. Like that's not true anymore. Mm-hmm. We need to also say it's not true that we need to be behind the computer we need to be able to feel empowered to say I can just stand here and and make a plan for my patient and and have trust in the fact that you do know that your patient well by having reviewed their medical record having examined them knowing Mm -hmm. what medications they're on Mm -hmm. Um, it's scary but if we can really force ourselves out of that comfort zone I think it, it would be better all around yeah 100% um before we sort of tease out uh, each organ system and what we want to hear in the presentations, can we uh, talk briefly about the structure of who talks when on rounds? Because I think these PICU teams are huge and <laughs> everyone sort of has their moment uh, to speak. And so I'd love to hear your, your framework for that. Yeah. So I do think that this is partially institutional dependent, right? Mm-hmm. So as previously mentioned at my current institution, the nurses speak first, right? Because mm-hmm. um, they're presenting the data and um, when they're presenting the, the details, the vital signs, the drips, the medications, they're also able to present their concerns, um, which I think is really important because nice. as we've mentioned a couple of times, things change all the time. So you mm-hmm. might go and pre-round on that patient at 6 a.m., but rounds might not get to that patient until 11 or 11.30 a.m. And a lot can happen in an ICU in five hours. And so mm-hmm. um, so that nurse who's probably been on since 7 a.m. Can, can say, you know, vital signs for this patient have been respiratory rate 20 to 60. But you know what? They've been breathing a lot faster within the past few hours. Their work of breathing mm-hmm. has gotten worse. I'm really mm-hmm. concerned that they're worsening, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so... All that to say, it might be institutionally very specific who talks when, but the important people should all have a say and the order is kind of up for grabs. Mm. Um, and so personally, I prefer the order where the nurse speaks first, where they are presenting the data so that the resident can focus more on interpreting that data um, and getting the up-to-date information that might yeah. have changed since that you pre-rounded. Exactly. Um, so the nurse is really, um, their role on rounds is presenting the patient status as it has been over the past 24 hours and as it is currently, um, and any concerns they have. They're our first line of defense. Um, I, I always like to remind people that nurses in the ICU have one to two patients, right? So they, of course they know that patient better than anyone else. They, they have two patients that they can focus their energy and their attention to and know them so well and know when to call people to the bedside. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, I think hearing from them first is, is a great order, but their role is really to clue us in when things are changing. And then, and then the resident, the resident or the APP sometimes, they get their turn to kind of interpret that information and manage that information. And some of this will depend on if you're, you have fellows present or not, depending on what your institution is structured as. But the fellow really should be helping to manage the order of people and making sure everybody has their time, their say on rounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once the, the resident kind of offers their interpretation, their management, you want to include all of your all of your team members who are helping to 
create the plan. So that includes your pharmacist, who's often going to clue you in. Like, I wouldn't start IV methadone on this patient, even though that's your plan, because the QTC is prolonged. Oh, thanks so much for noticing that. Or, you know, your vancomycin trough was a little bit low. You might want to go up on that. Whatever, um, whatever their perspective is on the patient, they have an invaluable role to play. And then mm-hmm. hopefully your dietitian is there to be like, P.S., you haven't maximized your calories. You might want to, <laughs> or mm-hmm. can we start enteral feeds on this patient? Like, um, you know, having that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, depending on your institution, you might have a social work or a patient liaison person who can kind of advocate for the family. So in my mind, it's nurses with patients status and concerns, residents interpreting and managing that patient status concerns, mm-hmm. all of the team members who help refine that plan. And then finally, either the fellow or the year attending can kind of incorporate all of that into one bigger picture and say, yep, this plan is great. And here's, we're going to enact that, or I'm going to tweak that plan a little bit. And here's why. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as as a faculty member, once the plan is fully established, I then turn to the family and I interpret that to them. Again, almost like going back to that language analogy, you've just said a ton of things of which they maybe understand 10% if you're lucky. And so going, being able to turn, turn to a patient and use non-medical jargon and say, here's the bottom line for your son, your daughter, your loved one. They're currently intubated they're getting better this is this is the plan for the day these are our goals for the day do you have questions right Mm -hmm. um and oftentimes parents their parents have different um personalities like we all do and there are some parents who are scared to be part of that team there are other parents who are actively involved and they want to speak up even when Mm -hmm. it's not their turn and i'll have to say you know we're gonna you get a turn on rounds too everybody gets a turn i'm gonna point to you and you're gonna know it's your turn to speak Mm -hmm. right Um, And so making sure that you're incorporating them. And then finally, ultimately, once that's all said and done, that's when I, as the faculty member, um, seize the opportunity to educate on that patient. Maybe my plan was a little bit different. Here's why. Maybe maybe your presentation clued me in that we don't think that they're at the same level of illness. And so maybe I'm going to teach them that. Maybe your vent plan was good, but a little could be a little bit better. Let me understand. Let me make sure you understand how to manage a vent and talk about a vent. And then once the education part of it's done, then the nurse gets to summarize to make sure that we're all on the same page and that um, it also gives an opportunity for your teammates who are probably trying to listen and curiously type in orders can make sure that they got all the orders in for uh-huh. you that you needed changed and updated. So those are the players. Those are that's the typical order that I would say is a successful way to um, go about rounding. It's it makes so much more sense, I think, to have nurses chime in early, whether that means they present the primary information. Because I, I just think of all the times that we as residents, you know that it's something is going to change. You know that it's a dynamic situation, but you present your entire thing and then you're like, and <laughs> give me all the information that happened since I was here three hours ago pre-rounding. <laughs> you know, um, so I, I, I love that. And I do think it's important for residents to hear it's okay to not be up to date if you're on rounds, right? It's yeah, okay that you're rounding. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody thinks you're not a good resident just because something changed with your patient. And mm-hmm. I think that's really important to hear because I think... Um, it is natural for us to be like, oh, I missed that, or I didn't know that information. That's okay. That's just part of the game. Mm-hmm. 
should we should we dive in uh yeah. system wise? Yeah, okay. Let's let's dive in systems. Uh Jack of all trades, master of none, that's that's <laughs> the ICU living. So <laughs> gotta go through each trade system, I guess. <laughs> So I, again, like I said, each institution is going to have a different order. Usually mm. it's, it's either neurorespiratory CV or it's respiratory CV neuro. Mm -hmm. Those are the three key organ systems. Without those three systems, you're really not alive. So those should always come first. Mm -hmm. um, so just knowing what the convention is at your hospital is a good place to start. But because my hospital starts at neuro, I will start there. Perfect. Okay. And I know you guys are going to interrupt me if you have questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Neuro, I think really the important thing to present um, is that assessment. Where is your patient neurologically, right? And as a general critical care pearl, two things that have never failed me within my career is that if you are neurologically inappropriate or if you have, I'll talk about heart rate in a little bit, but if you are neurologically inappropriate, you are critically ill and you need me. Okay, whatever that might be. Um, and so that's a really good rule of thumb. So knowing where you are, and the reason is, is because the body protects the brain at all costs. And so if the brain is altered, hopefully I, it's because I've done something, but if right. it's not because I'm doing something to you, then that's something I have to worry about. So mm -hmm. knowing, knowing your neurologic status is really important. And I think that there are two different things to focus on on neuro. One is, is there neuropathology? Obviously, if there is, that's going to be the primary thing you're presenting. If there's no neurologic pathology, then you're going to be focusing on supporting your neurologic system, right? Mm -hmm. So how do I support my neurologic system? I do that by, you know, pain control. That That's one of the things that you're going to be presenting on. Does my patient have adequate pain control? And here's, here's my data that supports yes or no. Mm -hmm. You're going to be presenting on, am I keeping my patient sedated for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. So what sedative medications are they on and how are they working? And mm -hmm. there are different scales that we should learn that mm -hmm. kind of help assess that. If I'm sedating a patient, how deeply sedated they are. Mm -hmm. um, and this goes back into sometimes orders are actually helpful educational tools too, because you might be asked to put in a in an order for an SBS score, right? And so you should never be putting in an order that you don't understand. And um, that's basically a, a sedation behavioral scale. Mm -hmm. um, and there's other scores out there. And again, this is going to be institutionally specific, but like an MMAS score, um, which is another uh, sedation score. When you are actively sedating a patient, you they all have the same general uh, consensus. The lower this, the number or the more negative the number, the more sedated you are. And so mm -hmm. I really like the analogy of you can walk into a room and you could be yelling and screaming or you could be applying um, painful stimulation and that patient is not moving. That's like mm -hmm. as sedated as you can possibly get. Um, and then the, the step back from there is basically you come into the room, the patient is sleeping quietly, and and you go over and you touch them and they just arouse a little bit, right? That would be the next kind of uh, stage. And then the next stage is where you come into the room and the patient might be uh, opening their eyes, but they're very chill, right? They're, they're in a chill state. They're not a, a harm to themselves or to the therapies that we're giving. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third state is that they're sitting up in bed, <laughs> and that's often not the place you want to be um, when you are actively sedating a patient because you're sedating them for a reason or fighting. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the, the 
zone would be where, where the patient's actively um, fighting or rolling around in bed. You'll hear, um, you'll hear bedside nurses say they're alligator rolling and you're like, definitely yeah. my sedated patient oh allergies. Um, so knowing where you are kind of on that scale of where you want to be and how different those two are is really mm-hmm. important. So presenting that information and saying that you're going to titrate your drips um, accordingly based on where they are on that scale. Like, let's say you think that they're oversedated. You walked in, they had pinpoint pupils. You, like, gave nail bed pressure and the patient barely even moved. You're going to say that. You're going to be like, I think we're oversedated. I want to back off on my drips. Or let's say you walked in and the nurse is like, help me hold down this patient. You probably want to go up on your drips. So that's information you want to present as well. The other thing to recognize within this system is that this is also a dynamic state. So you might walk in and the patient looks totally comfy, but that nurse who's been at the bedside for a 12-hour shift, they probably know better than than you. So make sure that you're talking to your bedside team and getting their input um, Mm -hmm. and presenting that as well. They probably already are if they think the patient's under sedated um, when they get their turn. But but that's a a great source of information um, because your assessment is just one moment in time. And as we've already established, things change with time. Mm-hmm. Also along those lines, I think this is a really good learning opportunity because we have different drips that achieve different goals. So we often use opiates, um, alpha um, agonists, and um, benzodiazepines as our sedative drips. Those are the primary ones that we use. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing that they target different things. So Crestidex is going to be an anxiolytic mm-hmm. primarily that your opiates are going to be targeting pain primarily, and um, benzos are also going to have um, anxiolysis and amnestic properties. And that's important because when you talk about which medication you're titrating and why, if you're on multiple drips, you might choose to say, I think that this patient is in pain because they're grimacing, so I want to titrate my opiate drip, right? Mm. Those are kinds of the things that you should be thinking about. And then I just want to go back. I kind of started it this way by saying if you have any neurologic pathology, you always talk about that first. And I didn't get into a really deep specific there, but making sure that if the patient has seizures, that you know what medications they're on and why. Mm -hmm. Um, Are they postictal still? Are they waking Uh up? What is their seizure status? That's really important um, as well. And that's kind of what I think about with the neurologic system. I'm sure I'm missing something, but those are the things that I want presented to me and kind of the thought process behind what you're changing. That makes so much sense. And the idea specifically that we're looking for a certain level of sedation and a certain score, something that I'm thinking about is is when hospitals do things like early mobilization and, and talk about them publicly, what they're not saying is that we're shooting for a higher... MMAS score, right? We're shooting for a higher SBS score to facilitate this early mobilization. And I think that that's a key piece of information that's not public in the conversation. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think it is a really great point too, because your neuro plan, and this is why I would advocate for starting with it, affects so many other things in your plan, right? Like, so early mobilization being so important to our our patients, are they safe to early mobilize? Those Uh are things. So like, you do want them on the lighter end of that scale. Um, Or maybe they're so critically ill, maybe they have a lactic acidosis of like 20. And you're like, I cannot let this patient move, right? So you want them a little bit deeper on the scale. Um, and, and linking it to the respiratory system, I think is always important as well. So oftentimes the patients are sedated either for a neurologic reason, a cardiac reason or a respiratory reason, Mm -hmm. but why 
why is this patient sedated, linking it to that. If they're sedated to keep an endotracheal tube in place, which is one of the most common reasons that mm-hmm. someone is sedated, um, knowing, okay, this patient is getting better and I'm going to have to extubate them. And I mm-hmm. don't want their sedation to be holding up their extubation and that informs your plan too. So while we like to compartmentalize, there's so much interplay between the different systems that you can't just say, I'm going to stick in my neuro zone and only present neuro knowing that they're connected. Um, And each of your systems should connect to each other is important. Because your neuro plan is going to be so directly informed by your getting worse, getting better, staying the same headline. That Uh is a logical next step. Yes, exactly. Should we uh, dive into the respiratory system? Yes. (laughs) Um, so obviously with the respiratory system you always want to know the level of support your patient is on and um, so because we're talking about that critically ill presentation that sickest patient we're going to presume that your patient is intubated right Mm -hmm. so part of this might be and I love it when residents are completely honest with me on rounds if they're Mm -hmm. like here are my settings and I have no clue what to do Mm -hmm. that's great Mm -hmm. Just on that, like, just be like, I think, I think it's always safe to say, these are my current settings. And if you have that framework that we keep going back to better, Mm -hmm. worse, same, Mm -hmm. if you, if you have an idea, you're like, these are my settings, my patient's getting better. So I want to wean, right? That's Mm -hmm. a simple step. So start there and then everything else will kind of fall into place. Mm -hmm. If you have a patient and they're getting worse, you can be like, I know they're getting worse. I want to escalate my support. Right. Uh So use that as a jumping off point. When you present your mechanical ventilation settings, it's really important to present the mode that they are in. Uh Um, And so in pediatric critical care, at least, we oftentimes use SIMV, which stands for synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation. These are all teaching points that are a different podcast altogether. Yes. (laughs) Yes. This is ours. But it's also so important to yes. know just walking in the door, right? Because, yeah. again, it's the dialect of the language that, you know, you're learning. <laughs> exactly. So without getting too off track and talking about ventilators, um, we often are using SIMV. And so um, knowing that you're using SIMV is important. Knowing if it's not SIMV, that's also important. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing that you should be presenting, SIMV or not. And then the second thing that you present in your mode is whether it's pressure or volume mode. And so oftentimes you're saying SIMV pressure control or SIMV PRVC. And pressure control is your pressure mode. PRVC is your volume mode. Again, not getting into ventilators. There's some subtleties there that we won't get into, but knowing whether you're in a pressure or volume mode. Mm-hmm. And then if you are an SAMV, which again is our primary modality, you're often, you often have pressure support as well. So oftentimes you start with your intubated patient by saying, I'm in SAMV, pressure controller PRVC with pressure support. Um, and then with that, then you can start presenting your settings. Um, and if you're in pressure control, you're going to present the pressure settings. If you're in volume control, you're going to set the volume settings. So we're going to start by talking about the pressure control mode. So when you're in pressure control, you would report the PIP that you set. Mm-hmm. That's the peak inspiratory pressure. Mm-hmm. You would report the peak that you set. That's your positive end expiratory pressure. Mm-hmm. You would report your rate, your pressure support, and your FiO2. 
those are all the things that you are setting. And if you are going to the bedside, you should be able to look at your ventilator and see exactly what those settings are, right? Mm -hmm. So again, going back to you don't need to go to the computer and it's not always up to date. If you know where to look on your ventilator, you can find your mode, you can find your settings. Mm -hmm. So that is the basic presentation that I want you to present. However, to add to that, if you really want to say, I know what I'm talking about, or at least fake it until you make it, if you are in pressure control after you're done with your settings, you can report the title volume that those settings are giving you. And that number is going to fluctuate. And again, that you can get this by talking to your friendly PICU-RT, by looking at the ventilator or talking to your bedside nurse. Okay, on these settings, what kind of tidal volumes are, are you getting? And like everything else in pediatrics, it should be reported in mLs per kilo. So let's say someone is set on pressure control at like 28 over 8. So that would be a PIP of 28, a PEEP of 8. You could then report with that, my tidal volumes are anywhere from 5 to 7 mLs per kilo. And when I hear a resident present that, I know that they're starting to think about lung compliance and I can start teaching to that. Mm -hmm. So how you should be thinking about it, here's my settings, here's what I'm getting for those settings. And then you're going to make, again, a judgment assessment. Is this good? Is this bad? Is this where I have been? Is this getting better? And you can make a plan based on knowing whether it's getting better or getting worse Mm -hmm. Um, and whether you think your lung compliance is good or bad. And so the flip to that is if you're in a volume control mode, you would be reporting the title volume that you're setting, again, in mLs per kilo. Mm-hmm. And then you would report the peak inspiratory pressures that is required to hit those title volumes. Um, and so, again, like if, let's say you're in PRVC mode, that's the volume control mode, and you're setting a title volume of 5 mLs per kilo, if your peak pressures are 18, that's really low. And you can say, my peak pressures are mostly in the high teens. I have great lung compliance. If your peak pressures are in the 30s, you can report that and you should report that and say, my peak pressures are in the 30s and that means my lung compliance is bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what you should be reporting when it comes to the respiratory system. I really appreciate the independent variable, dependent variable framework for reporting vet settings. Um, that's the thesis statement. That is great thing to take if you take nothing else away from that think about it that way because that's really going to make you stand out when you're presenting on rounds if you can present i couldn't have said it better the dependent and the independent variables if you can present those correctly you're really going to wow your picu attending we'd love to talk more about respiratory escalation could we just in broad strokes discuss the different types of non-invasive respiratory support that are available for our non-intubated patients yeah sure so again, going back to your micro assessment in each system, is this patient getting worse or are they getting better? And so I think about it in terms of oxygenation and ventilation as everybody does in the PICU. And so the basic support I have is support mm-hmm. that can support oxygenation, but not necessarily ventilation. Um, and that's just your regular nasal cannula, right? So your regular nasal cannula is going to help support just oxygenation. Mm-hmm. It's not going to help ventilation at all. And that's really good for a patient who's just dipping down with their SADS. Mm-hmm. Maybe they have a little bit of lung disease. We have a ton of uh, COVID patients these days, and all they need mm-hmm. is just a little nasal cannula to help them with their oh. hypoxic respiratory failure. But then once you start to have worsening oxygenation issues and, and worsening ventilation issues, you're going to need a little extra support. And so the spectrum I really think about it in is mm-hmm. I have my nasal cannula. I then have high-flow nasal cannula. 
I then have non-invasive positive pressure, which includes CPAP and BiPAP. And then my next step is intubation. So always know where on that scale your patients are and what your step up and your step down is. Because again, if they're getting better, you're going to step them down. If they're getting worse, you're going to step them up. Um, And how you do that is going to be very stylistic, um, but at least you're thinking about it in those terms. I have a patient on high flow. Mm -hmm. They're worsening. I'm going to go to non-invasive positive pressure. I have a patient on high flow. They're getting better. I'm going to start to aim towards getting them back to nasal cannula. Right. So you can kind of know which direction you're heading in and which is your next step in escalation. I'd love to run some settings in my mind for high settings by you and see if they're correct. I love that exercise. Let's do it. Okay. So for high flow, we're going to max out at two per kilo. Yes. And then for BiPAP, 10 over five. Wow. Such a low setting, 10 over five. And then 12 over six. And then 14 over seven. And then once our FiO2 is creeping up to 40%, 50%, now we're worried that they don't have reserve they need intubation. Am I close? Is that too broad of a brush to paint it with? So that's not too broad of a brush. I think those are good rules of thumb. I can do a deeper dive into that. So that's the perfect way to think about high flow. Um, so when I start my high flow nasal cannula, I always start at one liter per kilo per minute. And I start at one liter per kilo per minute because Mm -hmm. that's where you start to get the effect of high flow is actually heated and humidified. It's not just at a high flow rate. You can turn your nasal cannula up Mm -hmm. to 10 liters of flow, but you're not getting the benefit that you get from a high flow circuit. And that's because it's not as humidified and it's not heated. Mm -hmm. Um, And so at one liter per kilo per minute is where you really start to see those effects of the, not just the flow, but the heat and the humidification. You're reducing your airway resistance, which always helps to reduce your work of breathing. Um, You're increasing your uh, CO2 washout. You'll hear that term a lot. Basically, what that means is that you have less anatomic dead space. You have more of an FiO2 reservoir. And you're optimizing your FiO2 delivery. And I think here's another key part of knowing high-flow nasal cannula. Know that even if you're dialing in 100%, you're not delivering 100%. You're still entrapping some room there. And so high-flow nasal cannula really maxes out Mm -hmm. at 60% of what you're setting. And that is at one liter per kilo per minute. At one liter Mm -hmm. per kilo per minute of flows, you're going to be in setting at 100%. You're really probably delivering closer to 60 to 80% FiO2. There have been some studies that maybe show 80%, but I don't. I don't buy it. I'm going to, I'm going to assume the worst and say it's 60% if I go to. So I start there and it's always important to know about half-life too. Um, And so in the literature, you see that high flow nasal cannula will have an effect within 90 minutes. If you don't see an effect within 90 minutes, your therapy has failed and you need to change your therapy either by escalating your dose or by changing your modality. And one of the things you need to know is do I have 90 minutes to wait? <laughs> Is it, do I have 90 minutes to wait to make this patient better? Yeah, because sometimes yeah. that's how long it takes for high flow mm-hmm. to really work. And if the answer is no, go higher. <laughs> mm. It's also important because yeah. when you put someone on high flow, knowing when to go back and recheck them is important. So I'll put them on high flow and set a timer right. for 90 minutes and go back and check on them, assuming I have 90 minutes to wait um, to get them better. I then will go up to one and mm-hmm. a half liters and then to two liters. And the reason why two liters per kilo is my max 
is because if you look at the data, a lot of people think that you are achieving some element of CPAP with high flow nasal cannula. That is very debatable. You could have a pro-con debate about whether that's true. But the data that I have seen that I think is really um, trustworthy tends to be in people who are not mouth breathers. So keep that in mind, too. And who tend to be on the smaller side, just so you know. But that being said, at about 1.7 to 1.8 liters per kilo, and two is just a nice round number, that's when you start to get maybe some effect of a continuous positive airway pressure. Mm. Um, And so if that's the final way that I'm helping my patient with high flow, that's why I wouldn't continue to escalate above that, right? That's the final way that my patient is going to see uh, assistance from my high flow nasal cannula. And that's at a dose of about 1.7 liters per kilo per minute. We round up to two to give them, top them off a little bit. Maybe they are mouth breathers, give them a little extra leeway. And so that's where that comes from. Uh, Talking about BiPAP a little bit, again, different institutions will practice different ways. Knowing what modality your positive pressure is being delivered through is very important. Mm. So some of you, some, some institutions are really big believers in the RAM cannula, which is the nasal cannula that delivers positive pressure. That is uh, very institution-specific, provider-specific, but just know, I think this is my bias, but just know that um, the bigger the patient is, the less reliable the delivery of those pressures are. Mm -hmm. And so you can think of the rim cannula as kind of somewhere in between, I think, high flow and actual positive pressure. And then there's also different types of masks. Mm -hmm. So some masks just go over the nose. Some masks go over the nose and the mouth. And some masks go over the entire face. Those are often the cute ones because they look like little baby avatars when you have patients on those or scoop masks. But the the reason why that's important to know is because, again, are you creating a complete seal with your patient? Mm -hmm. Um, Because if you have someone who is a mouth breather and they just are on a nasal mask, some of those pressures are coming is going to be lost through the mouth, right? But if you have a mask that follow that covers yeah, yeah. the mouth and the nose, and you don't have a big leak because babies move around a lot, um, then you can be pretty assured that those pressures that you're delivering are being delivered to the patient. You're not losing any of those pressures, and that's that's important mm-hmm. because if I have a baby who's on sixteen over eight via the ram cannula that patient is probably less sick than the same baby who's on a full face mask 16 over 8 to maintain their work of breathing and their oxygenation. Um, And so the interface is really important. And then Alice, to your point, yes, absolutely. Um, I I use the rule of thumb. um, If I am not using the RAM cannula, because again, those pressures are less reliable, if I am using true positive pressure ventilation, I really do try to max out at 16 over 8. Anything Mm -hmm. above that, I'm I'm really afraid that Hmm. I'm close to the proverbial cliff. And so here's another critical care pearl. My job as an Hmm. intensivist is to know how far my patient is from falling off the cliff. The higher my pressures are, the closer they are to the cliff. The higher my FiO2 is, the closer they are to the cliff. And so those Parameters that you just said, Alice, are really good ones, I think. Um, I think that the higher your FiO2 is, the less reserve you have. So that's a really good marker. I think 40 to 50% is a very good safety line because then you still have 
room because the moment you choose to intubate, you're going to go to 100% mm-hmm. while you're getting ready to intubate. And so you, you will be mm-hmm. able to bump up their oxygenation a little bit that way. The moment you start to hit 50 to 60%, you're starting to lose that reserve. You're starting to get closer to the cliff. And once you're over 60%, if you're delivering this mm-hmm. via a full face mask, you're getting closer to toxic oxygen levels. And that's really indicative of underlying lung disease. And you don't want to do more harm by applying toxic oxygen. Oh, wow. So that's why I think choosing 50% is your line in the sand. Okay, if my patient's on BiPAP and I'm on greater than 50% FiO2, I should be intubating this child. You want to make sure you're intubating before you're standing at that cliff and potentially could fall off, right? Um, and, so, and, and you're also not doing any toxic therapies if your line in the sand is 50%. So I think that's a good marker. I also think it's important to know that uh, 10 over 5 in a 3-kilo baby is different than 16 over 8 in a 3-kilo baby. Right. So if I have um, two patients and they're both 12 over six, you have to take into effect the size of that patient. 12 over six in a 17 year old large adolescent uh-huh. is totally acceptable. That might be a little bit less acceptable in that three kilo kid. And so because we're pediatrics, always keep in mind that your dose, while you do have these general rules, your doses, it should be taken into account with the size of your patient. That makes sense. That was just such an amazing summary of the respiratory system. Yeah. Should we um, move on to the cardiovascular system? <laughs> sure. Let's do it. Let's do it. If it's active, if, if we really yeah, care. It's really active. Yeah. It might be. It might need to be like <laughs> among the first things you present. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I said earlier that the brain is one of the organs that the heart protects until the very end. And that's true for the heart too. So hopefully you're not you're not presenting a lot with the heart because if you are, then that patient's very sick. Um, and I alluded to this earlier. So any, um, I, anytime you have a patient who's not tachycardic, you can be reassured that they are pretty far from the cliff that we've already referenced, right? Um, the heart, especially in pediatrics, the heart rate is a key indicator of I'm stressed or I'm not stressed. Right. So, um, So that's why we focus on vital signs so often in the ICU, knowing what your range, knowing where you are, knowing where you stand in reference to where you have been is always a good idea. You do not have to present on rounds that the patient needs cardiorespiratory monitoring. <laughs> <laughs> but we will write it in our note. Don't worry. Yeah, it'll always, it'll always be in the note. <laughs> it'll always be in the note because you really have to write something under the cardiac system. Yes. <laughs> um, so that's okay to write in the note, but you do not have to present it. All patients in the ICU are on cardiorespiratory monitoring. Um, what you do need to know is what your hemodynamic status is. So things Uh that you take into account with this, again, going to like the intersection of organ systems, are you altered? Because if you're Uh altered, it might be because your CV system's not working. Uh Um, So your mental status is really important. Hopefully you've already presented that so so you don't have to repeat it. Repetition is the mother of all learning, but the enemy of efficiency sometimes. (laughs) So um, so make sure that you're not repeating information as much as possible. Um, Mm -hmm. Other things to present as far as hemodynamic status is if you're tachycardic. Bradycardic obviously would be concerning as well. Mm-hmm. Capillary refill, although it is determined by some environmental factors, is one of those key things you always want to present. 
-hmm. And then whether or not the the heart is needing support. Um, And so we talk about our vasoactive medications. Um, And so getting a sense of if you are on vasoactives and why do you need help with your pump? Like, are you on it because your pump is failing and you need to help the heart contract? Are you on it because you're in shock and you're trying to help deliver, not necessarily because your pump is failing, but it's not, um, it's not meeting the needs of the body right in that moment. So, um, what are the indications for assisting the heart with your vasoactive medications? And Sometimes it's, um, maybe it's that you think that you're in cold shock and when you're in cold shock, you are a little vasoconstricted. So maybe you want to vasodilate the patient and so you're going to be using beta doses of your pentacolamines. Those are all things that are kind of higher level learning. But as a resident presenting, what you need to know is what medications you're on, why you're on them, right? Mm -hmm. Whether they're doing their job. So mm-hmm. if you're on a vasoactive because you're in shock, I want you to say my patient's perfusion is improving. Mm-hmm. And I think that we can wean. We often like to have set parameters, like we are weaning for maps, we are weaning for systolic blood pressures. But what is that actually a marker of? That's actually a marker of tissue perfusion. So during mm-hmm. this part of your presentation, if you can present to me, I think our perfusion is improving and we're able to start weaning four maps of greater than 50 because my urine output has improved, my capillary refill has improved. That's going to show to me that you're thinking about that patient and why you think it's safe to be. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that is true too. Maybe it's that um, your your perfusion is the same or worsening. Maybe you have a lactic acidosis that is worsening. Mm-hmm. So then your presentation might be, I think we need to increase our vasoactive support. I think we need to add a second medication. Um, and that's also going to open the door for teaching. What would your second trip be and why? And I think a lot of times we do things very similarly, but maybe for different reasons. And if you're not sure why you're choosing one agent over another, ask that. Be like, I know we started epinephrine and I want to add a second agent and I know the term norepinephrine, but why would you choose that versus vasopressin? Or when would you start dopamine on this patient as opposed to norepinephrine? If you don't know, it's okay to ask. It's okay to say, I want to start a second agent. I'm just not sure which one. Can you help me with that? Because we know that indicates to us that that's a teaching moment, right? So it's okay to admit that you don't know something. And I think that that affords your, your your better opportunities. At the end of the day, rounds should be a conversation, right? Rounds should be, I want to do this with the patient. Great, tell me why. And this is why. Okay, I like the way you're thinking about that. How about also thinking about X, Y, and Z? Um, and so a true perfect rounds is where you're presenting the information so that you can have a conversation with your attending to further the patient plan, but also further your understanding. Wow, Alice, that was amazing. (laughs) I agree. I would have paid so much money to have that. I know. (laughs) I would have loved this episode before we entered the PICU. I just think that was a great breakdown of kind of the overarching approach that you should take as a resident to presenting effectively and incorporating all members of the team and the family and making sure that you're sort of maximizing your learning too. And the way that, you know, maybe it is a appropriate to divide up your patients, see who needs to really be presented on, and sort of triage. And the way that nobody has ever griped about your bronchiolytic weaning high flow presentation being too short, I also found valuable. 
yeah, making sure you're really spending time presenting on the kids who are, you know, in terms of the three buckets of kids who need to be there and are still being actively stabilized, kids who are stabilized to sort of improving and kids who are sort of improving to on their way, maybe out to the floor and just knowing that they're directly proportional to the amount of time you should be spending on them (laughs) in terms of your presentations. Yes. Thank you again for listening. Um, reach out to us at pedsavid at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram. We're also on Twitter. We don't know how to tweet. and We stay not knowing how to tweet. <laughs> we, how do you tweet? <laughs> Thank you for listening. Join us next time where we are going to dive into the remaining organ systems and then start talking about Dispo for our PICU patients. It is chock full of awesome pearls from Dr. Seams, and we... Can't wait to share them with you. See you next time.